Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm Jordan Valerie, Editor-in-Chief of Millennial Politics, and my pronouns are she, her, hers. I'm Amy Allison. I'm President of Democracy in Color. Hi, I'm Baron Holmes-Pittner. I'm a columnist for The Daily Beast and The Root. Hey, everyone. My name is Nathan Rubin. I'm the founder of Millennial Politics. And today we'll be discussing the results of the Alabama Senate election, where Democrat Doug Jones defeated child molester Roy Moore. So I'd like to start not with the actual election results, but what you thought going in would happen. Who did you think would win, by how much, and why? Uh, and let me let me just start by saying that for months we've been talking about Alabama. Democracy in Color was involved in a very sizable independent effort that was separate from the Jones campaign with the belief that black voters could deliver Jones victory. Uh, not a lot of people believed in it, but what many people were, you know, when they saw the election results this week, they were, oh, we're so surprised black women came out. But what I know is there were a black led uh, group of organizations with deep knowledge of Alabama that were operating and doing this amazing voter turnout, uh, working the networks of historically black colleges and universities and fraternities and sororities and community organizations, churches, prisons. They were organizing on the ground and it was separate from the Jones campaign. So when the results came in, I was like, we've proven it works. And we've proven that black women and the black community, when we speak to them and when local people run these kind of on the ground campaigns, even out in in rural areas where no cam no campaign, just the independent effort was, we can actually win. So I was uh, thrilled that our our strategy and our belief in black voters in the Deep South could uh, end up with a victory. Yeah, so I, I'd say uh, going into the election, I thought Roy Moore was more likely to win than Doug Jones, but Alabama is just a, a difficult state to to predict when you're trying to get people to vote. Like it's it's a state that's kind of had their, you know, their their structures, their democracy has thrived when they limit access to the vote and target African Americans to make it harder for them to vote. So I, I, I thought this election was going to be uh, very interesting because it, it would depend on voter turnout. If Roy Moore got his base out and African Americans voted, at like a similar level that they did in 2016, then you know Roy Moore could win. But if they they came out and voted Obama era levels, then there was a, a chance that Doug Jones would be able to to squeak a victory. And it looks like that happened, but it was really hard to predict. And if you're just looking at what Alabama did more often than not, it would make sense to lean towards thinking that uh, Roy Moore had a had a greater chance of uh, of winning. And so going in, I thought Roy Moore had a greater chance, but I'm pleasantly surprised and, and pleased with the outcome. Yeah, and I would echo that, what Barrett was saying. If you took a look at the polls leading up to the election, it was one of those choose-your-own-adventure type of things where I think Fox News had Doug Jones up by 10 and Emerson had Roy Moore up by 9. Um, and because they were relatively small sample sizes when compared to the electorate, you, know, you had over a million people participate in this election, and the polls would only measure 1,000 2,000, 3,000, and those pollsters would have to make assumptions and model what they assumed the electorate would look like. And I think to Amy and, Amy and uh, Barrett's points, you can't model for a special election where a alleged serial child molester is running on the Republican ticket. It, it was just such a perfect storm 
um, for Doug Jones. And Jordan, you can back me up here. We had a conversation in Slack um, and I was optimistic. I was hopeful that Doug Jones would pull it out um, and he ultimately did. So it was really exciting to watch those returns come in. I just, I have to jump in and say, Doug Jones won despite his campaign strategy. He was not, and his campaign was not focusing on black voters. I'll tell you right now. And as of the latest Federal Election Commission filings a week ago, he'd spent seven of nine million dollars in his campaign on television ads aimed at white voters. He and the white Democratic establishment in Alabama were terrified of alienating the white base. The path of victory, according to our analysis from the last months that we've been working, was he needed to win 30% of the white vote, which was huge in a state like Alabama, where white people are overwhelmingly Republican. And then he had to win an additional 150,000 black voters that voted in 2014 and 2016. That was our analysis. What Jones' analysis was is I'm going to win and focus on not alienating white voters and winning over Trump supporters or uh, these kind of Republicans. That's a losing strategy we've seen throughout 2017, and we certainly see, saw in the Clinton campaign. That's the strategy that needs to die. The new strategy needs to be on the ground, uh, talking to voters of color, particularly black women who are the highest vote turnout group of any race and gender. Doug Jones, he, he was the beneficiary of this independent strategy of, of, of talking to and, and real turnouts, powerful turnout operation. But it wasn't because his campaign prioritized black voters. And, and if Democrats do not learn this lesson now and, and change their spending and their priorities, they could have the mistaken impression that, hey, Jones, you know, if we, if we focus on the, you know, the numbers and the polling and all that, that does not take into account the turnout and who was focused, who actually came out for Doug Jones, how he won. Yeah, he ran, he ran against a terrible, horrible, reprehensible candidate, but even so, he wouldn't have magically won just because he's running against a, a child predator. He won because black women and black people turned out specifically because there was an operation to do so. So I don't want Democrats to get the wrong message because if they get the wrong message, they're going to continue running, losing campaigns. And we uh, saw victory not only in Alabama, but in Virginia based on a core of people of color. Uh, let's keep it going. That's all I have to say. No, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I want to talk about Doug Jones's approach to race, which I would say is, um, I would describe as uh, shit. He generally tried to avoid the subject of race entirely, running as a kind of middle of the road candidate that I couldn't imagine anyone being genuinely excited about outside of the context of defeating Roy Moore. Even post-victory, he said that his campaign was about Alabama, not black voters. So he refused to even give any credit or give any thanks to the black voters who elected him. Yeah, so I, I think when we talk about this election and try to put it in a, in a national perspective, we I think people underestimate just how the div divided the South is and how talk of like racial equity, racial equality, emphasizing black voters does actually turn off a lot of white voters in the South. And it's, 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 it's a dynamic that you don't see in northern states or on the West Coast or, or even like in Chicago. Like the South, especially Alabama, is just a whole different beast. Like this, this area has had, I think African-American population has been about 30% at least for well over 100, you know, 100 years. And they've found ways via like moral turpitude and other stuff to suppress that vote 
to ensure that black people do not participate in elections and make it so that you can like be an Alabama politician and not actually think about African-Americans at all. And that's just like the norm in that area. And so for Doug Jones to try to get 30% of white voters, that's, as a Democrat, that's really, really hard. And the prospect of alienating those 30% by emphasizing African-Americans is a real concern. I'm not saying that he shouldn't emphasize, and I'm, I'm going to say that you know, we'll see what he looks like when he gets in Congress, what he does to benefit African-Americans, because within the black community, you know, we definitely appreciate that he prosecuted those Klansmen that uh, the, 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 the bombing. We understand that. But how you relate and relay your message to white people in Alabama is going to be very different than a lot of states. And I'm from Atlanta. My dad's from a small town in Alabama. I totally get how Roy Jones had to run his campaign like I. My parents were in Atlanta when Jimmy Carter ran for pre when, ran for president and went ran for governor and stuff, and he had to send a lot of appeals to white voters to get them to support him. So this is just like how the South is, and it's really unfortunate that you know that's just the nature of the beast down there. Um, but that just needs to be taken into consideration. I, I I wouldn't say that Doug Jones doesn't care about black voters. I just think it's very hard. As, an, as a person from Alabama running statewide to campaign on, I'm looking to empower the 30% of the population that our society has existed by oppressing that 30% and then win 30% of the white voters. It's just, I'm not saying that that message isn't good. It clearly is. It's just hard to win in Alabama by saying that. Let me, let me just jump in and say we did win. What I'm suggesting and what Democracy in Color is saying is that in a place like Alabama with its, like you were saying, the history of supporting racial segregation, you would think it would be an, uh, a near impossible win for Jones to succeed. And you're right, there is a voter suppression and a deep disenfranchisement of the black community, but there's also the ability or a roadmap, a new playbook uh, for Democrats to win. And because the black voters are 56% of Doug Jones' ultimate vote and black women, 36%, just imagine, 36% of his votes were from black women in that state. What we are trying to do is say for Democrats, and it's not just the South, although you make a really good point about that, it's everywhere. The Clinton campaign lost in Michigan, for example, because they did not vote, they did not reach out to black voters. They had no on the ground operation in that state. They made a lot of hubris, a lot of assumptions that they would get the black vote, even if they didn't talk to black voters. And actually Clinton got fewer votes in the congressional districts at border Detroit, Jordan. I think I was telling you about that last time where Clinton lost by 10,000 votes. And if you look at the these two congressional districts near uh, Detroit, really she could have campaigned to black voters and made that difference up and won the whole state. So it's not just in the South, it's a particular kind of blindness that the Democratic Party, which is uh, dominate the donors and the people who sit in front, you know, make decisions on behalf of the DNC and the committees, people who are gatekeepers for camp campaigns, uh, largely white men who are political consultants, have a kind of blindness that is causing massive losses because they don't see black voters. So what I'm saying in, in Alabama is that we have demonstrated that if you invest in knowledgeable people from the community who uh, run a strong field campaign, that really focuses on, when I just say not just black voters, but the new American majority, which is a, a multiracial, that a place like where you're from in Georgia, which is much more 
uh, multiracial, almost majority people of color, that we could win statewide where Democrats haven't in, uh, in over a, a decade. We can win in Georgia. We can, you know, we can win in other places like Arizona or by having a new playbook. So that's really what I'm saying is I'm, I'm saying white Democrats have been terrified of alienating the white vote. The white vote, we can top out 25, 30%. White voters are Republican and they are not at the base of the Democratic Party anymore. There's a slice of progressive, but they're not, that's not where, I don't believe that should be the focus um, of our campaigning going forward. Yeah, so I'm not disagreeing with that. I, I, I'm clearly not saying that we should have a Democratic Party that's not reaching out to minorities. Like, you know, I'm, I'm a minority and I think the Democratic Party needs to do more of that. But what I am saying is that this template that is forming now, I think largely that template is, is uh, it was is being able to be created due to like Obama empowering and you know more African American the minorities voting in his elections where now this is a an electorate that Democrats realize that they rely on it's not something that it's just like uh, you know going to make up fifteen percent or twenty percent it's like this could this is these are decisive votes it's making a new game plan that we are now figuring out how to apply in Alabama. Virginia, all sorts of states were looking at how the Clintons didn't apply it in the 2016 election and how that was disastrous for Hillary Clinton. But what I am saying with regards to perceptions of Doug Jones and what he could done or couldn't have done or whatnot, it's like the temple we're making is a new one. And in Alabama, it's a very, um, it's a very precarious one to express that you kind of have to like covertly appeal to all these African-Americans without all these white people knowing about it because you still need to get 30% of white voters in a very conservative state, which is very hard for for a Democrat. And if you're going to do that by getting a bunch of African-Americans to vote, it makes it harder to appeal to those 30%. So you have to do it in a way that may not be what you'd want to do in Michigan or some other state that's not nearly as segregated or divided racially as Alabama. And so, uh, where the expectation for how Alabama would act, uh, I think it's kind of we're we're imagining that Alabama's better than it actually has ever been, and so that's that that's where I'm going. I, I agree with both of um, the pieces that you're saying, and I would just want to reference that um, after the election, um, Tom Perez, head of the DNC, um, tweeted that you know this election was won um, by the black community, specifically black women, and we should continue to invest. Um, in those communities. So I think, Amy, to your point, um, you know, it's the, the data speaks for itself. And I would hope that the, the Tom Perez era in with Keith Ellison by his side, by his side um, they're paying attention and they're going to make some more investments. There was a great piece in Politico after the election about how the DNC sent, you know, 30 staffers down to Alabama to try to activate millennials and the, the youth, the percentage of uh, youth voters in the electorate was actually much higher um, than it had been before. So I'm, I'm optimistic for the future, but I, I totally agree with what you guys are saying. Yeah, I think something big is that the mobilization in Alabama was largely not done by the Jones campaign. They didn't actually do very much to mobilize black voters. It was grassroots organizations who were like on the ground going door to door, like that kind of stuff. But something that all of you have mentioned as well is turnout. And even though there was exceptionally high turnout, it's important to note that the history of voter suppression in Alabama has made it really difficult for black voters in particular to cast their ballots. And it's actually Shelby County, Alabama, that brought the case to the Supreme Court that resulted in the nullification of Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act 
which required states with a history of voter suppression to get federal preclearance for any changes in election practices. The majority opinion in the Supreme Court there ruled that this was unnecessary because the VRA supposedly was successful in eliminating racism from our electoral system, which is, of course, an absolutely absurd idea that was immediately disproven by the fact that once the decision was made, states started instituting suppressive policies, such as voter ID requirements that specifically targeted black voters. A lot of these have been struck down as unconstitutional and discriminatory in court, but they're just going to keep popping up until Congress decides to do something about it, which it won't as long as Republicans are in power. So I was wondering, can we talk about how voter suppression impacted the election in Alabama and what we saw on the ground there? So I, I, I would say I don't think we've they've come up with some... Um... Uh, if there's a lot of data thus far saying what the turnout could have been without like the voter ID laws and and, the, and things of that nature. Uh, what I will say is the moral turpitude clause that Alabama has in their constitution. I don't know if Alabama's constitution is just this absurd document that was created specifically to bring back white supremacy after Reconstruction, and they've kept it. It's, it was created in 1901. There's all these things in it to prevent uh, African Americans from voting and engaging in politics, and it also like disenfranchises like poor whites as like kind of collateral damage. But moral turpitude is a thing in their constitution that. Basically, if you had committed any crime that they could say constituted moral turpitude, which was never defined, they could just take your right to vote away. So like African-Americans historically would get their, their right to vote be taken away from like due to parking tickets and, you know, cashing a bad check and just minuscule things like that. The Supreme Court said this was unconstitutional in like 1985, and they said that moral turpitude pertain to uh, felonies specifically. And in this year, Alabama's governor, Kay Ivey, gave a list of like 40 to 50 specific felonies that fell under the moral turpitude clause. Uh, so that in itself enfranchised like like 10 to 20,000 African-Americans or just, you know, Alabamans. And so there was a whole thing where Alabamans were, were going into jails to find people that you know, had access to vote. And a lot of people were voting for the first time ever because of a clarification of this moral turpitude clause. There, there weren't the voter ID requirements that people had access to the DMVs and all that kind of stuff. It could have been even higher. But uh, one of the impediments that has always been in, in Alabama since, you know, the turn of the 20th century had been reduced to like its greatest capacity this election. And that helped allow more African-Americans to vote. So that's a that's significant. But it, it does speak to the many, many impediments that Alabama has that we're now just like chipping away at them. Like I think one of the important points about uh, Alabama is the organizing that happened with people who have convictions and because that, that's related to that moral uh, turpitude. I mean, many states, including Virginia, had attempted or successfully disenfranchised uh, mainly at, uh, black and brown people who had been through the criminal justice system. In a place like Alabama, people had rights. They didn't realize that they could still vote. So there was an explicit outreach to people who both were in the system in some way, either behind bars or who had records, who still had the right to vote, that that was an important part of communicating people's actual voting rights and helping to overcome. Because people on the ground actually had to show in the black areas, you, you remember, Alabama, uh, a few years ago, tried to close voting locations in largely black areas at DMVs. That's what they did. Now, that was overturned, but that was an attempt to suppress the black vote. And what we saw this last week was people having to show their ID uh, multiple times 
And they estimate about 100,000 people were turned away. I, I, I read in the, in the course of the day because they didn't have the, the number of uh, you know, ID here in California, where I'm at, you just have to give your name and you give your and you vote. You don't have to show a bunch of IDs. The lesson from Alabama is one in a place like Virginia, where we were also successful this year. The the Democrat won the governor's race against a Trump-style racist candidate. That there was an explicit education and focus on people who had been through the criminal justice system about their voting rights and reaching out to them and encouraging them to vote. Uh, in a place like Georgia, where Stacey Abrams is running, in a place like Georgia, I think voter suppression is very real. She's likely to face off to Brian Kemp, who's been taking people off voter rolls. So we're going to have to continue. It's like an arms race where we, on one hand, we need to register voters and get and, and turn them out. On the other hand, try to overcome these uh, voter restrictions. But if Stacey Abrams wins for governor in Georgia, she has veto power over redistricting, which is one of the big uh, voter suppression techniques that the Republicans have. So it's all connected. It's it's a force. And it's not just a force in the South. It's uh, voter suppression is happening in uh, 23 states. I'd say just to add on to that, like when we're talking about Alabama and voting and democracy, there's not a, a time where voter suppression just wasn't part of the infrastructure. The VRA definitely uh, made it harder for Alabama to do it. But voter suppression is just the norm. This election in uh, many ways. One, I guess one key thing about the moral turpitude is once they limited it to specific felonies, the Secretary of State who oversees elections in Alabama put out no information informing people that now were enfranchised that they were. So like grassroots organizations had to go and find these people because even when the state is compelled to do something, they'll come up with like budget cuts or, you know, this doesn't fit into our agenda, you know, and they'll, they'll find some way to ensure that people that can vote don't know that they can vote. And it's it, that's just the nature of the state. And so voter suppression is just the norm in Alabama. So this, this election was largely defined by people trying to overcome the, just the regular suppression that's like the norm. In a place like Birmingham, uh, about a month ago, the millennial uh, Randall Woodfin ran against this longtime incumbent. He won. He energized a younger black electorate uh, to beat this incumbent by 18 points. And I think part of what will give people a reason to come out and be able to overcome this voter suppression is to get exciting candidates that particularly the younger electorate, like a millennial generation can be like super excited and coming out for because it doesn't have to stop us. We can overcome it in a place like Alabama. Because that was a recent campaign in Birmingham, that was a third of the votes that Jones got from Birmingham alone. So he could credit a millennial mayor and his campaign and his supporters for giving the lift and the success, a big part of that to Senator-elect Jones. I feel like we're, we're both trying to address voter suppression, but we're also trying to excite the base. Because if you count the new American majority, Obama, just numerically, even in a place like Alabama, which would look grim, uh, we still have the capacity to be able to overcome those with the right set of factors. And we have we could take back the House if uh, Democrats invested their money um, and prioritize the kind of leadership that we're, we're talking about. So.
So, Amy, when we spoke in November after the Virginia elections, we discussed the whole identity politics versus the white working class discussion. And if folks aren't familiar, that's the myth propagated by a lot of white pundits positing that Trump's base is the white working class. They were alienated by Democrats paying attention to marginalized voters. Apparently, that's a distraction from the quote unquote bread and butter issues in the words of Bernie Sanders. So Democrats have to stop focusing so much on women, LGBTQ folks, people of color, if they want to win elections. All of that is, of course, untrue. So let's do a little debunking in the aftermath of the Alabama election. Identity politics, just like saying uh, multicultural education is bad, is just a, a word play by the conservative forces who are trying to prevent people of color from exercising their... Right. I mean, it's funny, it's like white people have an identity. If we ever doubted it, just look at the president and the way that people like Moore, people like Gillespie, who ran for governor of Virginia, the, the Trump predator ilk, they're talking about America, who deserves to be American. They outwardly attack Muslims and Mexicans and black people. And uh, that's using their identity as a weapon. That's identity politics. So in the face of that, we cannot allow even the Democratic Party to say, oh, identity politics is bad, we need to get to bread and butter. Look, that is not the era that we live in. We live in a time where the president and the whole party is using openly racist attacks. Even in the Bay Area, uh, just individual are feeling free to be able to attack. There was a woman who, who was in a, a Starbucks attacking a couple of people for speaking Korean. Here in the Bay Area, it's happening all over the country. That is the era that we live in. So for Democrats to be blind to the fact that, oh, don't mention that you're, what your identity is if it's not white, basically. We don't have space or time. We can't prioritize that. That's not, I would say it's a losing strategy because we're in electoral politics, but it's also not uh, acknowledging that half of the base of the Democratic Party are people of color. And to denigrate, so embracing identity, if it's not white identity, erases people's perspective and, and their importance in terms of moving forward, winning our country back. I look at someone like Stacey Abrams, I was talking about earlier. She was like, you know, I'm, I'm, my identity is I'm a black woman. I live in the South. I, there's, I'm very proud of that. And that informs who I am in my politics. I, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, we're in the Democratic Party. We said there's nothing wrong with having our identity and, and saying that we need focus. And if Alabama did not teach traditional Democratic Party thinkers, like how to how to embrace and the power of talking specifically to different groups, as well as a multiracial coalition. I don't know what's going to, because uh, it shows that identity politics is actually very, very powerful and needed for, for uh, the Democrats, instead of being weak and, and not be able to respond to Trump in the tools he's using in kind, you know? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about everything, including that whiteness is an identity. You know, all the way back on election day, 2016. I don't know what y'all thought going in, but I thought Hillary Clinton would win both the electoral college and the popular vote, largely because I assumed that white women cared more about sexual assault. Of course, since then, I've realized and seen again in Alabama and Virginia and New Jersey that whiteness trumps all. And white women still overwhelmingly voted for a man who molested little white girls. I, I wouldn't be surprised if they didn't care about little black and brown girls, but little white girls. So I guess... My question is, uh, what what are what are we supposed to do with white women in this political climate? Well, I, I would just want to jump in here and, and say that 
if you look at some of the exit polling data, one of the most fascinating pieces that came out of folks who voted for more was that they just simply didn't believe the allegations. So I'm, I'm not so sure that it's we can generalize and say white women don't care about sexual assault. I think we have this sort of dichotomy between people who exist in a reality-based world and consume real news and those who sort of eat up all of the right-wing propaganda, whether that's through Breitbart or Infowars or Drudge Report or even Fox News lately, they're, they're, we are almost existing in two very distinct media bubbles. Um, and I think the reason that white women, especially down in Alabama, could rationalize um, their vote for Roy Moore was that they just thought it was some sort of deep state plot to overthrow and smear his uh, kind of character, if that makes sense. So the, the South is just more different than I think a lot of people give credit for. I, I was watching a thing the other day just about people justifying their support for Roy Moore, and one person's argument was that it wasn't uncommon in Alabama for a 13-year-old girl to get married, or, you know, and that the age of consent in Alabama is 16. And so, like, it, what he was doing was, in that time, could be considered completely acceptable. And so, like, we can't judge him negatively for that. Like, that, that was the person's argument. And so, you look at that, you go... This is a society that in the 1970s had these structures that they condoned as just normal and okay that so many other parts of America would just go, this is outrageous. And this, and then you add on top of that just the systemic racism and, and Jim Crow and all the other stuff that extends beyond the white community. And that's just like the foundational component of a lot of these southern states, which I don't think people in other states really grapple and comprehend. Like that's just their norm. And that what people are, I, I, what? Yes? I'm having a conniption over here, Barrett, because I, Okay. Uh, there's no white women on this call. And, and the white women I know that are part of the new American majority that wouldn't, didn't vote Democrat are the minority of white women. And they, they, to me, have struggled to explain why majority of white women voted for Trump, who was already self-admitted uh, being abusive and a predator to women using his power. They have a hard time explaining why white women, two thirds of them, voted for more. Like the people can try to explain it away, but wow, white women who embrace feminism have a, a set of issues that they believe in. They choose race over gender. And in in my twenty five years of being in politics, I haven't had this is the first time where the broader country is like distinguishing between white women's political behavior and black women's, for example, and Asian American and Latin, Latinas are also in the mix. It, there, there is no one who is able to explain to me adequately why the majority of white women would vote for uh, accused pedophile. There's no explaining away uh, for that. There's no excuse for that. And it's also just white women are not a core part of the Democratic Party base. They can't, they're not reliable. Most of them are Republican and they have been for decades. And so it's not surprising that they went for more. It's just not. Great. So I'm not, so so I'm not saying you, that I am surprised. I, I'm just saying that like when people are talking about being surprised, the explanations that people from Alabama are giving are that during that time in the 70s, our society was just structured in a way that this wasn't considered that out of line. And that's very profound for like people in other parts of America 
to like comprehend to like wrap their head around where like they're just saying like this thing that you are talking about being like uh, like it disgusts people and they're just flabbergasted how could anyone condone this they're saying that like our society was structured to like allow this to a certain degree and that's just what people are saying and like but that but that's that may be true for that that may be true but it's highly if you look at it by race that's not I'm the not case. saying that I'm not so saying we, that we I'm have looking a, at it by race I'm saying that like the white people in Alabama who are Get, they're asked to defend Roy Moore. These are answers that they're giving, and that is a very profound answer that like needs to be incorporated in how we perceive this region or what these people and how they how they act. And this is clearly we're talking like white women and white men giving this answer, not black men, black you know black women. It's clearly this is a, a racial divide in Alabama as a society that was structured by white people, and so. Like, I'm just putting that into into the mix. I'm not saying that like that excuses anything. I'm just saying that this is what these people are saying to justify this bad decision that they're making. Um, what and um, I lost my train of thought for the next point I was going to make, but uh, I just want to like put that out there. Like this is this is what they're saying to justify that this vote, and that's that's significant. Well, it's you know Rosa Rosa Parks. Um before she became famous for the Montgomery bus boycott, being the face of the civil rights movement. She was working for the NAACP and had launched a national campaign after a black woman who was leading a church revival was gang raped by a group of white men. And during Jim Crow era, the abuse and rape of black women was very, very common. So uh, Rosa Parks was organizing in Alabama and trying to start a, a movement to protect black women and girls. And it's not surprising that black women came voted against a, a predator like Moore. It's never been okay to go after young girls in a, a segment of the community. And I think the reason why this was such an important race, among other things, was that Trump has changed the center of what, what's okay in this country, what's acceptable and for us to have a reasonable conversation or try to reason away that in 2017 people could believe that it's okay to go after teen girls, I'm really worried about this country because it's showing that we're in a place where we've actually, our moral center, we don't even, we can't even claim to have any kind of moral superiority if he would be considered a legitimate candidate. That was the like great danger of Moore's candidacy. And I feel like there's not enough credit that's given to black women for acting not only in their own interest, but to hold our country in Alabama to a, a moral standard. We can try to get in the minds of Trump supporters or people who would support a pedophile. I don't think that's our, our what we should be doing. I think what we should be doing is saying, understanding why people came out so strongly to defeat more and understand how the people who hold that standard how they can be elevated and continue to, to continue to show that political strength in the country. I, we got to stop focusing on people who are, are going to vote for Republicans no matter what, even if they're pedophiles. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with not focusing on those people and focusing more to African-Americans. We, I think we've been on the same page with that from the, from the get-go. I, the, and I, I just start from a, a more bleak place than most people regarding race issues in the U.S., where, like, my my referencing of that Alabama one is we're not talking they, like they aren't talking about like a new moral center coming up because of Donald Trump or Roy Moore that's making people worse than they were before they're just saying we've always been this bad 
that's why this horrible action we are excusing it because like this is the norm here like we we didn't get worse we're doing what we always do and that's regarding how they want to treat white people not even talking about how horribly they treat black people to a degree beyond that and so like the moral center we're talking about i think a lot of people or have an illusion that we've had one that was better than what we actually have been. And when Alabamans are justifying voting for Roy Moore, they're actually saying like, we've actually been more immoral than you thought, and this is just what we do. And that I think is very profound. I kind of want to dig into how this plays into religion, because of course we heard a lot about the white evangelical vote in Alabama, but there's something about the history of the religious right that's been overlooked, even erased. Most folks think that it all began with abortion, the opposition to reproductive rights, but the religious right actually began with segregation, with white Christians opposing desegregation and organizing around that as their first major issue, then of course expanding to abortion. LGBTQ rights, etc. With the idea that Roy Moore is obviously majorly uh, anti-reproductive rights, anti-LGBT, could you kind of walk us through like how he is also a racial demagogue? Because I think that's kind of something that people have missed in this conversation. Yeah, so I, I'll just jump in. Like, you know, people acknowledge in the South that Sunday is arguably the most divided day in the South. Like, African Americans go to black church white Americans go to white shirts, and that's just how the South is divided. And it's not divided that way because a bunch of like black Christians from Africa showed up here hundreds of years ago and decided that they don't want to, you know, worship Christianity alongside white people. It's like, you know, Africans were forced to uphold Christian beliefs to survive, and then they were forced to go to different churches and not be able to worship next to the white Americans that made them become Christian. And so... The, the In the South, religion at its core, just how it's been structured for hundreds of years, has a racial component that we just don't acknowledge. And so Roy Moore's principles and how they interpret Christianity or whatnot really adhere to a white perspective on it that intentionally has tried to exclude black perspectives and black values and that creates a division. And I think for many people in Alabama, since this has been the norm for hundreds of years, they don't really even perceive it as that. They don't even think about it. Like, this is just how it's always been. And they don't question as to, like, why that has been the case. And so this is clearly, like, uh, racially uh, divisive and evangelicals have perspectives that alienate African Americans. And, and they wonder why that is. But the, it is because that's, that's how they made it. Well, so my perspective is probably a little bit different than than the rest of the folks on the line. Um, first and foremost, you know, I'm I'm a straight white man, um, but I'm also Jewish. And the thing about the Christian right, I'm very cognizant when folks try to incorporate their religion into public policy. Um, you know, even though our founding fathers were very religious in nature. Um, and they tried to kind of incorporate um, what they called Judeo-Christian values into the, the, you know, the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and the founding documents. Um, I'm a big believer that your God is your God and my God is my God and, and you shouldn't force me to follow any rules of your religion. Um, and when I see folks like Roy Moore um, or Mike Pence even who use 
the guise of religion to exert control on the electorate, that really scares me. And, and that starts to encroach in what I like to think of as kind of the, the Christian dominionist form, where they're just looking to get power, exert power, and control people that are different from them. Um, so I don't really have any comment as far as how race plays into this, but I'm very skeptical of people that try to use religion to gain power in government. I agree that we shouldn't have religion play this force in politics because a healthy democracy just shouldn't be the case. I just I see the you know, the opposition, just like the civil rights movement. I see people like Reverend William Barber who. Uh, launched a poor people's campaign. He's the founder of Moral Mondays. And he preaches much like King uh, preached about a moral center. And he organizes in the church, but it's an interdenominational effort. I listen to him uh, on Facebook Live sometimes. And this morning he was talking about, they, they told him, you can't get black and white ministers together in Alabama. And he had over a hundred. And by the way, when I say black and white, I know there's Latinos and uh, Asian Americans in Alabama. So I don't mean to exclude people. But when he was talking about the black and white preachers, it's because of what you said, Barrett, and it's because it's a, it's a segregated, a Sunday segregated, but he was able to get black and white preachers together to take a stand as, as part of a movement to win back the country, to establish a moral center and actually, and actually say that the right doesn't get to claim the Christian church as their basically a bludgeon or their cover for doing these things that, that William Barber would say are absolutely not a Christian way of looking at fellow people, you know, in, the, in, in society. There is tremendous value of tapping that long tradition uh, in the civil rights movement till now, actually it's longer than that, to organize the religious community. It's just that it can't be the exclusive, like the church cannot be the exclusive power of the, of the right wing, because there is, there are so many people that are part of a religious community. Uh, that that want to see the country different. I think we progressives, we, sometimes we miss that opportunity. Uh, so like at Auburn Seminary, Linda Sarsour, the Muslim, there's the Jewish and Buddhist and other kinds of representatives, religious institutions that are working across across religion to articulate a moral center. And I, I think that's where we have the greatest opportunity to stand up against people using Christianity as kind of a cloak. Of course, Roy Moore lost the election. He's not going to be Alabama's next United States senator, and he's currently pathetically refusing to concede, which is, uh, in Trump terms, sad exclamation point. But I sort of question how much he lost. 1.5 points isn't like a huge margin. Roy Moore as an individual may fade into obscurity, but I don't think we can ignore what his candidacy represents, what it exposed, just because he lost by a small margin, especially because Republicans, you know, some of them ditched him after they found out he was a child molester. But let's think of all the other things that weren't deal breakers. It was not a deal breaker for him to say that he wanted to criminalize homosexuality. It wasn't a deal breaker when he said that being transgender is a mental illness. It's not a deal breaker to Republicans that he longed for the days of slavery. Do you think that there has been some damage done, regardless of whether he, you know, ultimately pulled through over Jones or not? Well, well what kind of damage do you mean? Like damage to the credibility of the Republican Party? What, what, what do you mean? Well, you know, we're in a two-party system. So 
what one party is deciding is normal has a big say. I don't think the Republican Party has been credible for a long time. The pundit class didn't really, like, call out Roy Moore on any of his bigotry, you know? They called him a populist, even though he can demean all of these groups, such a huge percentage of the population. But still, in the eyes of this white punditry, he's still a populist because he appeals to a bunch of angry white people, I guess. Like, what does that say about how the people at the top are framing this this election? Because that does matter to how everyone else is perceiving it. Yeah. I mean, it, it goes back to the point about moving the center. Trump and the Republicans have moved to center about what's acceptable in politics. And our country has been damaged just in every every way you could think of has been damaged be, uh, because of it in one short year. I just think looking ahead to 2018, Democrats who take a strong stand against racism, they take a strong stand in uh, for uh, trans rights, in defense of LGBTQ community, in defense of Muslims and religious communities, in defense of the poor, that's where we should go. We shouldn't I, I don't want to see Democrats continue to be kind of milk toast, weak, unable to take a strong stand. I look at people like Ted Lieu, the congressman uh, down in Southern California, who's calling out every day. Like, uh, we need, you know, Maxine Waters, another, you know, a congresswoman down in LA. These people are the national voices, but we need many, many more Democrats to take much firmer stance to make it clear look, we're not seeding the center. We do not accept attacks on we don't accept justification for uh, attacks on women and people of color. We don't accept it. That's who we are. And um, I have yet to hear a uh, really clear a set of policies as all, and also words coming from the majority of the Democratic elected leadership. And I think that needs to change. Now, having said that, I, Barrett, I was thinking about what you're saying. Alabama, the Democrats were super lucky that there was an independent effort that Democracy in Color was involved in that turned out black women in particular. They're just lucky. But are they going to go from being lucky to being smart? And they, Alabama is because uh, win for Democrats is because Roy Moore was such a god-awful candidate, right? But with the right plans and the right investments, especially focusing on turnout of color, Democrats can take the Senate, Senate House of Rep, and at least five state houses, including Georgia, Florida, uh, Arizona, where really great people of color are running as candidates. I think we can do it. Focus on turnout. Focus on the message. Give people a reason to get to the polls. I'm, I, I actually think Alabama is, is reason to, to give us all hope. People are feeling like hopeless. But I, I feel really hopeful that the Democratic Party establishment and donors and things like that are going to learn that lesson. Uh, to be stronger, not, not weak, stronger, and focus on the base. Turn out right. the base. Right. So I, I'd, I'd say the, the complexity of what we're talking about, I, I think we, we acknowledge that it's complex at the same time we, we act as though it's not as complex as it is because what we're trying to do essentially as a Democratic Party is to remake the American center. Like the what we consider the center of American politics right now has been a politics that has relied on the suppression, the exclusion of minority voices. And now, due to there being more minorities and fewer impediments to, you know, and, and, and mobilization efforts to get African Americans to vote at, you know, like 60, 65 percent voter participation, which prior to Obama was that that was like an unheard of level. We're talking about if African Americans, 65 percent of eligible voters vote that like that's what we're looking for. That that hasn't happened in America in well over 100 years, 150 years to expect black people to vote at those margins. And in doing so, and when you add 
the Latino community, Asian Americans, the LGBTQ community, these issues will now result in a shifting of the, what we consider the center of America and the pundits that thrived and people who have perspectives on this previous center that had that existed while all those voices were excluded, they're not going to know what to do. Even the terminology that they're going to use is going to be inadequate. You know, a, a populist person in an American sense has always been a person who appeals to a bunch of white voters. That's just what it is. But now, since we are now talking about a Democratic Party that could be largely defined by African Americans and Latinos, which you know, in many states, African Americans and Latinos combined will will make at least thirty five percent of the electorate. If you can get ninety five percent of that vote, you just need to get you know thirty twenty percent of white voters, and that is a whole new d dynamic in America. The idea that you can win elections by appealing to a minority of white people, that's not normal in the United States because we've been so good at ensuring that black people and Latinos and all the other minorities who have lived here for a very long time just don't have a role in our society politically, uh, you know, with, with power and, and, and the vote. So what we're talking about right now, the Democrats and our society, we don't have experience doing it. It's very much going to be trial and error. Like Obama was like this amazing unicorn, essentially, that saw a new math and believed he could get black people and other minorities to vote at levels that they've never voted at before. Now the Democratic Party is issue is to keep those levels at what used to be unprecedented, make that the norm. And, you know, America's kind of wrapping their head around that, where like, it's not like a large population of black people just showed up. Like we've always been here. We had a society that was structured on ensuring that these people didn't have voices. What's that say about us? What's that say about white identity? All of these things are, are, are happening now that make this very, very complex. And so, uh, we're trying to make a new center, and that's that's uh, very, very difficult. Well, I think to what Amy's point was earlier, there's still so much room to grow in terms of turning out the minority share of the electorate. When you look at the sheer numbers of people who vote, something like you know 40 or 45 or 50 percent of the American electorate do not participate, whether that's as a result of voter suppression or some other mechanism, the Democrats have a real opportunity, even if we can turn out five or 10 percent more, we could win every election in a landslide. So we've talked a, a lot about turnout and what what we want for the future. And I'm wondering, what specifically does the Democratic Party need to do as an institution to recreate victories like this? Thus far, it looks like they're understanding the new template. You know, thankfully, there's been a lot of special elections this year where they can try it out, where it's like, you know, we'll try out this strategy with, with John Ossoff. We'll, we'll try out this strategy and these strategies in Virginia. We'll try this one in, in, uh, in Alabama. It's becoming like much more clear that uh, engaging and empowering minority voices is going to be the ticket for democratic success. Now, let's replicate that in all these various states that are very different, that you appeal to the demographics and the people there differently than you do in one or the other, and figure out the template that works across the nation. I, th I think it's kind of coming into shape now, and I, I find it to be very encouraging because, you know, we can talk about the flaws of Hillary Clinton's campaign, but essentially her campaign ran on like a pre-Obama uh, outreach message and hoping that like Obama stuff kind of carried on by becoming friends with the Obamas and getting Obama support. But 
Now it's we're kind of using a continuation of Obama's more inclusive more minority outreach uh, uh, strategy, and it's it's taking shape. So I think the Democrats are actually doing it together. We're just um, in the process of like you know watching the sausage get made, and no one really likes that. We like to you know. Well, it, <laughs> if 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 the Democrats learn that lesson, it would change our country and our politics for a, a century. We're nearing the point where we're majority, like even the political term minority won't mean the same thing because people of color are nearly the majority of the country. But like uh, you asked specifically about 2018, emphasizing turnout of voters of color is, is, the, is what the focus should be for Democrats. Republicans margin in the Senate slipped to two seats. There are Senate contests coming up in Nevada, Arizona and Texas. Those are winnable if those are if there's a turnout of voters of color. Think about Texas. Uh, Texas is considered to be as conservative as Alabama, but the demographics are not. Uh, 53% of Texas eligible voters are white. Uh, Trump won Texas by 800,000 votes, but there are 4 million eligible non-voting people of color in 2016. 3 million Latinos. What if the Democratic Party went full in registering and engaging Latino vote in Texas. I know they could win um, statewide. And there's a really good statewide gubernatorial candidate in, in, in Texas as well. In 2018, governorship, six states could swing from red to blue with the right funding and support. And look at like the North, Maryland and Illinois, they're Democratic, but they have Republican governors because Democratic Party turnout has been so piss poor, uh, basically, that hasn't they haven't prioritized it turnout. So if we look at the demographics in the South and Southwest, Georgia, Florida, New Mexico, Arizona, are striking distance with a fully funded game plan for turnout. Look at look at Georgia, we've been talking about that. Clinton lost Georgia by 230,000 votes, there are 1.2 million black, Latino and Asian American eligible voters who did not vote in the last election. If the Democrats actually then uh, I'm saying the Democrats, like the state parties, the national DCCC, uh, DGA, the Governor Association, um, all of the places that the the priorities, uh, these PACs, independent PACs, uh, people like Tom Steyer, who spent $30 million in races last year, yeah, the unions, the consultants, I'm talking about the whole ecosystem. If they figure out, we're not going to chase after the Republicans and try to convince them to vote Democrat. That is not a good use of focus. What we're going to do is we're going to turn out our base and we're going to speak to the largest group of the people who are most loyal to our set of policies and our in our point of view. And we could see, particularly if Republican turnout is kind of soft, uh, when Republicans are in power, their turnout is lower. If they If it remains like that, uh, that will also help us to get over the top. So I see us being able to take take back six state houses, take back the Senate, take back the House, if we focus on this turnout, which gives me kind of goosebumps because I'm like, yes, we can totally do it. And Alabama showed we can do it. I'm optimistic about what's possible now. I agree. Like the Democrats, it, this is a new era in just American politics where African-Americans and Latinos uh are voting at a large enough percentage where it's pretty obvious that they can essentially decide elections. Uh, that's not really been the case 
uh, at a national level in America, national and state level. And that's pretty obvious. And I think this year, the Democrats have been trying out various tactics to win. And this is the, the narrative that's coming out that, you know, success is by engaging African-Americans and Latinos and, and, uh, and, and, and empowering them to vote. And if we do that, you know, the math is on our side. We just have to make sure that they don't, uh, conservatives don't do voter suppression efforts and make it harder for the Democrats to vote. Um, but yeah, that's, I agree. What can individuals, you know, just listeners to this podcast who aren't necessarily DNC members do to make this change to help empower black women in Alabama and throughout the nation? I will make a plea for people who are really wanting to win in this kind of new politics we're talking about to donate to amazing uh, campaigns that elevate the exciting kind of next generation like Stacey Abrams, who's running for Georgia, but also uh, uh, campaigns that uh, prioritize focusing on the new American majority, the multiracial electorate, and who are about turnout. Stacey Abrams is one of those campaigns. It's got 30 organizers on the ground right now. So, uh, and that's very unusual for a statewide gubernatorial campaign some six months before uh, the election to have so many organizers, but she's doing things Alabama style. Uh, and she has been doing that for six months. Awesomely Lovey, who's one of the bloggers, has compiled a list of 100 plus black women who are running up and down ballot. Donate to them and volunteer for them as, a, as, as one concrete way that we can both uh, make real our thanks for black women for turning out and uh, supporting our interests, but also elevating black women's leadership. I think I think that's something that people all over the country could do. Okay, great. Where can folks find all of you online? Democracyandcolor.com. Our, we have a podcast, uh, which is, so I have to have you on our podcast too. Um, uh, uh, Democracyandcolor.com. And then I'm at Amy Allison on Twitter. You can just find me on Twitter. It's uh, at Barrett Pittner, or my name, full name is Barrett Holmes Pittner. I'm really easy to find. A lot of my columns come out on the Daily Beast. You can find me on that. Uh, I have a website. It's just barrettholmespittner.com. You can check me out there. Awesome. Folks can find me on Twitter at Nathan H. Rubin or at Millennial Politics, millennialpolitics.co. And folks can find me on Twitter and Medium at Jordan Val Allen. Thanks for coming on, guys. Make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media. Subscribe to our newsletter and check out our merch at millennialpolitics.co. And stay tuned for the next episode of our podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Jordan. Thanks, Jordan.